Well, if you would turn to John chapter 3, we're going to dive back into the Word. I will read the passage, pray again for grace, and then we'll look at it together. John 3, and our text this morning is verses 17 through 21, but to give us a little context, we'll look at verse 16 first. John 3, verses 16 through 21 This is the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Let me pray together. Father, when you come before you, we ask for grace by your spirit that you would illumine our hearts to understand your word and soften them to receive its truth. We pray that your word would dwell richly within us and bear fruit in our lives, fruit of love for you, fruit of faith and trust in your son, fruit of obedience to his will and commands in our life, that we might reflect his image in our lives. We pray that you would help me and as to open up the word faithfully this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why did Jesus come into the world? There have been many different answers that have been given to that question. Eastern religions like Hinduism and, and Buddhism have suggested that Jesus was another enlightened man, perhaps even a God who modeled wisdom, who modeled sacrificial love. Islam would say that Jesus was not only a wise teacher, but Allah's most, one of Allah's most important prophets, leading up to the final prophet, Muhammad. Jews typically believe that Jesus was an ordinary man, but if they were not Christians, that he was, yes, a popular teacher in his day, but not the Messiah, as Christians claim, or even a prophet. Liberals within both the Protestant and Catholic traditions would typically believe that we don't really know much about the historical Jesus, but this Christ figure described in Scripture provides for us a paradigm, a paradigm of virtue, of human love, and of pursuing justice in society. None of these perspectives, however, reflect the answer that's actually given in the Bible. So what is that answer? Why, according to the Bible, did Jesus come into the world? Our text this morning tells us, Shortly after his first miracle in Cana of Galilee, changing water into wine, 
Jesus went up to Jerusalem, you remember, for the Passover feast, and there he began teaching, he began performing miracles. His ministry had begun, and many people were concluding that he must be from God, his teaching must be from God. And one of these was a prominent teacher and ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus, hateful knight. And during that conversation, Jesus baffled Nicodemus by telling him that he, though he was a teacher and ruler of the Jews, could not see and would not enter the kingdom of God until he was born again of the Spirit. And when Nicodemus protested that this didn't make sense, Jesus rebuked him for being Israel's teacher and yet demonstrating such little understanding of the scripture. Then he began teaching Nicodemus more about his identity and his mission. And so we read these striking words Last time, in verses 15 and 16, where Jesus told Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that's where we left off last time. Now, building upon those incredible statements in those two verses, Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus and everyone who's now reading this book why he had come into the world. Let's see what he had to say. We talked last week about what Jesus meant by the world in these verses. In these kinds of contexts, the world in John's gospel referred to fallen humanity, in rebellion against God, living upon the earth. And we see this in verses 19 through 20 of our text, the text I read, where John described the world and said they were people who love darkness and hate the light because their deeds are evil. In verse 36, he described them as under the wrath of God. In verse 16, he indicates that left to themselves, the world of sinners are doomed to perish. That is the opposite of have eternal life. That is suffer eternal destruction away from God's goodness and blessing. This is the world in John's gospel, in our text. In addition to this, we saw that in verse 16, that even though this world of rebel sinners deserves to perish in God's judgment forever. That God so loved the world that he gave up his only son, the eternal divine person of the son, to enter into the world as a man, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, and then to die as an atoning sacrifice for their sin so that As he says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, life with him. It was an act of profound grace and compassion, motivated by a love that is difficult for us to comprehend. Now, in verse 17, Jesus clarified something else about why God the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. He said this, For 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now here Jesus really reiterated why God had sent him into the world, to save it from perishing. But this time he said it in contrast to why God had not sent him into the world to condemn it. John's account of the gospel records Jesus saying something like verse 17 on many different occasions. So for instance, in John 8, 15, he said to the Jews who were listening to him, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. That word judge is the same as the word condemn in verse 17. And again, in chapter 12, verse 47, he said, if anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Very similar to verse 17. And yet, we also see that in chapter 9, verse 39, it says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And who can forget those woes, those pronouncements of judgment, which Jesus uttered against the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. So there certainly was some sense in which Jesus did come to condemn the world, to judge the world. He did condemn certain people for their sin, and his ministry did result in temporal judgments on certain people who would not listen. It also must be said that Jesus would judge the world at the end of history. Jesus himself, he made this clear in that remarkable discourse in John chapter 5, where he talked about the works his father, God, had given him to do as the son. And first he said in verse 22, For the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. And then he described how this would happen in verses 28 and 29. He said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, speaking of himself, he said when he returns in glory at the end of the age, an hour is coming, he will raise all humanity from the dead, what Christians call the general resurrection, and they will stand before him, Jesus, and they will give an account for their lives. And his judgment of them will determine their eternal destiny, some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of judgment. That was a remarkable thing for a human being to say, was it not? It testified to his identity as not only a man, but also the divine son of God. Now, I want to suggest that when Jesus said of himself these words, In our text, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, verse 17. He was making a distinction between the primary mission that God the Father had given him to accomplish during his first coming versus his second coming with respect to this world of rebellious humanity. 
during his first coming. His primary mission with respect to the world was to secure salvation for whoever would believe in him. At his second coming, his primary mission with respect to the world will be to bring full and final judgment upon it for its wickedness and rebellion against God. That is, whoever has not been saved before that day. This is a sober warning, isn't it, to believers, to unbelievers alike. First, it's a warning for unbelievers. Despite what you may think, you are not free to live your life however you please. Rather, you are God's creature. You are made in his image. And you are accountable to him, therefore, for whether you have obeyed his will for you in your life. And all you have to do is read the actual commands of God revealed in the Bible to see that we are all guilty of breaking them. And we all deserve the punishment for doing so, which is the wages of sin is death. And whatever you think of Jesus now, whether you believe in him or not, the fact is that God has appointed him, Jesus, to judge the world in righteousness at the end of the age. So a time is coming when you and I, when all of us will stand before Jesus to give an account for our lives. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And as we saw in John 5, his judgment of us will determine our eternal destiny. But John 3.17 announces this good news that before that great and terrible day, that day of final judgment, Jesus came a first time, not to judge, but to save guilty sinners like you and me from the punishment we deserve for our sin. And he did so by bearing that punishment in our place when he died on the cross. In that act, Jesus satisfied the demands of God's justice against our sin so that God's holy wrath might be turned away from us who believe and trust in him. Paul so famously put this in Romans 3, 23 through 25 this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, pardoned, acquitted, declared to be in the right before God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. But the time to receive this gift of salvation from God is now. When Jesus has come to save the world before he returns to judge the world in righteousness and it's too late. So the message to you unbeliever is Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Second, it's a warning to us who have believed in Jesus for salvation, not to keep our mouths closed, but to proclaim this good news, this gospel to those around us. For, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, behold, 
Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Christ has come this first time to save the world. But he will come again to judge it. So let us take advantage of this season of delay to call our friends and our family and neighbors and co-workers, as many who will listen, to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation before the day of judgment comes. So, why did Jesus come into the world? Well, we see the answer in verse 17. He came not to condemn the world, but to save it. But does this mean that the world is not condemned? Well, Jesus went on to address this issue in verse 18. There he said, verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, when Jesus said in verse 17 that he was not sent into the world to condemn the world, that did not mean that the world wasn't condemned before God. Remember, the world in John's gospel refers to fallen humanity, people living in rebellion against God upon the earth. So the world is not in some kind of neutral place before God. Rather, the world stands condemned before God because of its wickedness, because of its rebellion against him as their creator. And God stands over against the world, therefore, in his holy righteousness, in wrath because of their sin. You know, this truth is reflected throughout the scriptures. One thinks of Psalm 7, verse 11. It says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Romans 1.18, lest we think this is Old Testament stuff and not new, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 2.5, Paul warns the unbeliever, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, this is the condition of all humanity left to themselves in their natural state. Apart from Jesus Christ, they are rebelling against God and God stands over against them in righteous judgment. What Jesus is saying here in verse 18 is that He came to save the world through his death on the cross. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. They're pardoned. Their sins are forgiven. They have peace with God because Jesus came to take the penalty that they deserved in their place upon the cross. To those who believe in Jesus, trusting him for salvation, the Apostle Paul says this, Colossians 2, 13-14. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Or think of Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
Through faith, fallen sinners come out from under the sentence of death for their sin. They're pardoned through the death of Christ. And they enter into eternal fellowship with God. They have received eternal life. But, Jesus adds in verse 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, those who refuse to believe in Jesus, who thereby reject the gift that Christ has come to offer, will remain in the condition that they have always been in, condemned before God for their sin and under his righteous wrath. Only they will have added this sin to their others, that they have rejected God's only son and spurned his gracious offer of salvation. You know, this is a sober reminder to us all that there is, again, no neutral ground on which you can stand before God. To put it this way, using Paul's language from Romans 5, We are all either guilty in Adam or righteous in Christ. There's no other place you can be. Either you've been forgiven through faith in Christ or you are still in your sins. Either you have been reconciled to God through the death of his son or you are in rebellion against him and under his wrath. There's no middle place where you can stand. But you might be saying, well, I'm not opposed to God. I'm not opposed to Jesus. I'm just not sure if what the Bible says about them is true. Well, that's fine, but that doesn't change the fact that God, the God of the Bible, he does exist. You are his creature. You bear his image. You live in his world. You breathe the air he provides. You've broken his commands. And refusing to repent and believe in his son is also a sin. Do you see? There's no neutrality with God. So every day that you go on living your life according to your own will and ideas or those of other human beings, rather than God's word and scripture, is a day that you are living, whether you know it or not, in rebellion against God and stand condemned before him. You cannot delay making things right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. There's no neutrality with God. And believer, we need to let sink in, given that, what has happened to us. Jesus said, whoever believes in him is, is, did you see it, is not condemned. So right now, in the present, you believers sitting here in these chairs, you are no longer condemned. You're still a sinner, but you're not condemned. You deserve God's wrath, but you have peace with him. Though you should suffer eternal destruction for what you've done in your life, you need no longer fear that penalty for sin. You have, as Jesus will put it later, passed from death to life. When you simply cried out to Christ in faith, when you put your trust in him for salvation, he was condemned so that you could be acquitted. He died so that you might live. 
So now, believer, walk in the joy and the liberty of those truths. Don't walk around as if the penalty for your sins still looms over your head. Don't act as if the wrath of God still hangs over you because of your sins. Walk in the joy of the Lord. Rest in the fact that you are at peace with him. And bask in the love and in the favor he's lavished upon you as his adopted children. Now let me hasten to say, just as if you took out your dad's car and crashed it, you should fear a measure of discipline. He loves you, but you need to make things right. And so the Bible says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that relationally we need to deal with our sin before God, but his wrath is no longer against us. We are no longer guilty before him. He is our father. He loves us. And nothing will separate us from his love. Believer, let the words of Romans 5, 1 through 2 just wash over your soul this morning. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That above all, believer, will help your heart to love the Lord and to live for his glory as you, as you ought. So if Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, does that mean the world's not condemned? Well, no. Verse 18 makes clear that those who do not believe are under God's condemnation. And in case any still wonder, how can Jesus say that the world is condemned? John went on to explain, or Jesus went on to explain in verses 19 and 20. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus explained why the unbelieving world stood condemned before God. And there he said this, and this is the judgment. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You know, it is a truism of life, isn't it? Wherever you are in the world, that much criminal activity takes place at night. And this is because it's easier to get away with things at night when it's dark and when most people are asleep. So people who are up to no good typically don't like the sun coming up after a long night or someone coming along like a police officer and shining a light on them because it exposes the bad things they're doing, right? That's a truism of life. It's that truism about life which lies behind Jesus' judgment, his verdict of the world in these two verses. He characterizes the world as living in darkness. Now, of course, he's not talking about physical darkness, but moral darkness. It's the darkness of ignorance and folly that results from rejecting God and rejecting his truth. You know, Paul describes this darkness in Romans 1.21. He says about fallen humanity as a whole that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, of course, this deliberate rejection of God 
and his truth, which plunges people into darkness, it's a product of a heart that's already hardened and corrupted by sin. So Paul said of fallen humanity in Ephesians 4, 18, he said, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's a willful ignorance. And the reason sinners choose to shut their eyes to God's truth, to plunge their hearts into darkness, is because it allows us to indulge our sinful desires with impunity. You know, Paul went on to say, I read Ephesians 4.18, the next verse he says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The point being is that sinful, fallen human beings don't like the light of God's truth because it exposes their deeds and their desires for what they are. This is how Jesus is describing here the state of the world, humanity in rebellion against God. He says, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. This explains, by the way, the world's reaction to Jesus in his earthly life. You think about it. If the Bible is true, then Jesus was literally God who took on human flesh and entered into the world as a man. You'd think, okay, if that really happened, surely people would recognize him and listen to him and believe in him and flock to him. But that's not what happened, is it? In fact, he ended up at the end of his life hanging on a cross as a condemned criminal. What explains that? Well, later in the book, Jesus would describe himself as the light of the world. Here in verse 19, when he says the light came into the world, he's talking about himself. He is the light of the world. And once again, this is not because Jesus' body radiated physical light, so he always had to wear a thick robe or something. It's because he embodied truth and he embodied righteousness from God and it came out of him both in his actions, his character, his words, his deeds, his teaching. In his first letter, John, the author of this gospel, said of Jesus in chapter 3, verse 5, in him there is no sin. Later on in this this book, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus would say of himself, I am the truth. So when Jesus came into the world, he shone, he shone the light of God's truth and righteousness as it had never been seen before upon the earth. He was like a brilliant light, suddenly shining in a very dark place. And because of this, John says, verses 19 through 20 of our text, The world hated him because he exposed their deeds as evil. His true teaching exposed their ignorance and the lies that they had embraced. His righteous life and instruction exposed their evil motives and their deeds. Like bugs scurrying into the cracks when the light is turned on in a dark room. Like criminals running into an alleyway when a policeman comes and shines a light down it. The world has rejected Jesus. They would not believe in him. 
because they did not want their foolish thinking, their wicked deeds to be exposed by his light. So John said, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. I keep saying the world as if it's you know, somewhere out there and if we are believers, we've been called out of the world, but Probably you can remember time in your life before you were saved when these things were true of you, of me. This is why the world is condemned. It's not that Jesus was so disgusted with the world for its evil that he threatened to squash him like a bug if they came near him. Quite the contrary, he had come down not to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But the vast majority of people would not come to Jesus for salvation because they did not want to confess their sin and forsake it. And he would force them to do that because he came proclaiming truth and righteousness. So people stayed in the darkness where they could not believe could keep believing the lies that allow them to indulge their desires with impunity. This is the judgment, Jesus said. This is why the unbelieving world stands condemned before God. And this evaluation of the world, it's not just for back then, right? It it wasn't just valid in Jesus' day. It's, It's not like the ancient world was way worse than the modern world in this regard, right? Yes, the gospel has spread throughout the globe. There are disciples of Jesus in every nation on earth now, but Jesus wasn't talking about his disciples here who he had called out of the world. He was talking about unbelieving humanity, those who are still living in rebellion against God. That's what the world refers to in these kinds of contexts. And the world has not changed since Jesus' day. Indeed, do we not see that as Christians... Sinners ourselves with an imperfect grasp of the truth. When we do proclaim and hold fast to the truths and to the standards which God has revealed in Scripture, how does the world respond? They still hate it. They hate the truth that we are creatures of a personal God instead of the product of random events in a blind, purposeless universe. They hate the truth that we are created, created male and female, instead of being able to determine our own gender. They hate the truth that marriage was created by God as a union of a man and a woman, pointing to the relationship between Christ and his church, instead of being able to define marriage however they want, to encompass many different kinds of unions. They hate the truth that God designed human sexuality to be fulfilled between a husband and a wife in marriage rather than in all the variety of ways they might choose to use it. They hate the truth that this new covenant religion established by Jesus, revealed in the scripture, is the only acceptable way to relate to God, instead of all the various other ways that they would like to make up. They hate the moral commands revealed in the Bible, which often conflict with the moral standards that they prefer The world still hates the light of God's truth and righteousness, most fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And people still refuse to come to him 
They still prefer the darkness of their own ignorance and folly, and it allows them to be their own master, to determine right and wrong for themselves, to indulge their desires while still claiming to be wise and moral. And Jesus says, this is why the unbelieving world stands condemned before God. This is the judgment. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus at the beginning of this conversation that unless one is born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, it's because the problem with humanity, the world, it's not just a matter of bad behavior such that it can be sufficiently corrected with some moral teaching or sprinkling a little religion into a person's life. The problem is the heart of man, right? The prophet said, the heart of man is deceitful above all else and desperately sick so that people love darkness and hate the light. Only when that heart of a human being is changed by the Holy Spirit to love righteousness and love truth will that person come now to the light, to the light of Christ, repenting of sins, trusting in him for salvation. Unbeliever, if you're here this morning, this is what you need. And Christian, this is what we have received and what we must pray that God will give to those to whom we proclaim the gospel. Let's also remember, brothers and sisters, that it is true, our hearts have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, if we're a Christian, but so that now we do, we, we love the light of Christ, but we also know that there is part of us which has yet to be redeemed. The Bible calls it the sinful nature. The Bible calls it the flesh, and we see there remaining corruption, and that flesh is still just as bad as it ever was. And it fits the description of these verses. Our own flesh, still plagued by remaining corruption, it still loves darkness rather than the light because its thoughts are darkened, its desires are bent upon evil. So to put it simply, believer, remember that you still have something of the world in you, in your flesh, until... As Paul cried out for in Romans 7, we're finally freed from this body of death. Knowing that, believer, will keep you from self-righteously looking down on the world and say, as the publican in Jesus' parable, Lord, thank you that I am not like them. And it will also make you rightly cautious about your own heart, right? knowing that your flesh is still prone to avoid the light, still prone to self-deception and folly, self-justification that will allow you to indulge sin with impunity. Knowing that, believer, we have to see our desperate need for God to keep us walking in the light. And he does that as we read his word and as we stay in communion with him in prayer and as we are a part of the gatherings of the church where other believers can help us to see the speck in our eyes. These are the means by which God convicts us of our sin and keeps us walking in the truth. So how could Jesus say that the unbelieving world is condemned before God? Because as he said in verses 19 through 20, their works are evil. 
And so they hate the light. But finally, what about those who do believe in him? How are they different from the world? Well, that's what he spoke about in the last verse, verse 21. The last words of his discourse with Nicodemus, Jesus said this, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know that phrase, does what is true. It's, you know, we have idioms in the English language. That was a Semitic idiom. It was a does what is true is an idiom that was used to capture living in accordance with the truth. Living, doing what is right and true in your life before God. It refers not just to an individual action, but to a way of life. And Jesus says that those who are living this kind of life, whoever does what is true, he says, come to the light. That is, they don't hate Jesus for teaching truth and righteousness. Rather, they are attracted to Jesus because they love the truth and righteousness. One thinks, for instance, of that man, Nathaniel, whom we are introduced to in chapter 1, whom Jesus called a true Israelite in whom there was no deceit. He did not hate Jesus like so many of the Jewish leaders did in that day. He was attracted to Jesus because he recognized in Jesus the type of truth and righteousness that he already loved and embraced. Now, when Jesus says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. He's not speaking of the reason why people come to the light so that their works can be seen. He's saying, when people come to the light, being attracted to the light, it becomes evident. You see that God has been at work in their lives. Notice, Jesus is careful to say here that when a person, like a Nathaniel, who had been walking in accordance with the truth and came to the light of Christ, it was not because of his own inherent ability. It was because his works had been carried out in or by or through God. God was at work in him. To use Paul's terminology in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in them both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do you see what Jesus' main point is then? He is the light of the world. And when he arrived, you could see those who already belonged to God, in whose hearts God's spirit was already at work because they, unlike so many others, were drawn to Jesus rather than repelled by him. They were already living according to the truth, he declared. Now, of course, they weren't perfect. I mean, think about it. These are men like Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. But they had faith. They, in that way, were like Abraham and Samuel and David and Elijah before them. And they sincerely desired to obey God's commands. Because God was at work in their heart. This reminds us of an important point, doesn't it? A person's life, how they live, testifies to the true condition of their hearts. A person who has truly been born again, in whom God is at work by his Holy Spirit, 
will then show it by coming to Jesus in faith, by living according to his truth and commands. Now, it won't be perfect. James says we all stumble in many ways, sometimes big time. But when they do, they will repent and they'll get back up and seek to obey him again. But those who are walking in darkness, to put it this way, doing evil deeds and loving it, do not have God at work in their heart, even if they claim to believe. I think of John's words. This same author, but in his first letter, 1 John 1, 5-7, he said this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus cleanse us from all sin. So if a person claims to be a Christian but is walking in darkness, doing evil and loving it, in other words, then we must call them to repent. And start walking in the truth. And if they do not repent, we cannot affirm their profession of faith or accept them into the fellowship of the church. You know, brothers and sisters, this is what church discipline is about. Ultimately, only the Lord knows a person's heart and he will reveal the true condition of their souls on the final day. We can't do that. But God does, as a church, call us to make judgments about a person's profession of faith before we receive them into our fellowship, or if they are in our fellowship, as to if they begin living in sin, we are to render a judgment. And if they do not repent, Matthew 18 says, we are to ultimately treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's because of these principles. So, how are believers different from the world? Jesus tells us in verse 21, they walk in the truth by the power of God. Why did Jesus come into the world? This morning we saw the answer here, John 3, 17 through 21. He came like a light into a darkened world to save all who believe in him. May we be those who walk in the light as he is in the light. And may all who are still in darkness come to him this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the words of Scripture We think of Peter's words to Jesus. Lord, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, you didn't have to speak to us, but in your grace you have spoken to us. In all the scripture, most fully and finally in the word, your son Jesus Christ, the word become flesh. And we thank you that your words, your words tell us hard truths that by the power of your spirit, when pressed home by your spirit, make our hearts soft and pliable and repentant, that you give us faith in your word, and when you do, it leads to eternal life, not just everlasting life, but life in fellowship with you and with your son forever. We thank you for the blessing of these truths, as sometimes hard as they can be, that you cut it straight with us in the scriptures. 
We pray that you would give us hearts that are soft and believing, hearts that are perhaps repentant this morning, and that you would help us, Lord, to walk in the light, even as you are light. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.